welcome to Science and Society COVID-19. And we're all wondering why we have got to this state of affairs after a year and a half of this epidemic. 172 million cases and 3.7 million deaths. There's been a recent report from the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, and it said some really intriguing and hard-hitting things. It said, we've got to make this the last pandemic. It said this is a preventable disaster, that there were weak links at every point. And finally, the comment that really gripped me was, we have been warned. And this is Anton Posniak talking today to Michel Kazachkin, who was on this report. He was a, a part of the board that wrote the report. And previously, Michelle was director of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria, and is a UN Secretary General Special Envoy on HIV and AIDS in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. But the pivotal role in COVID-19 that this group have played, we're now going to explore. So Michelle, what went wrong? I mean, with preparedness that we had already, or was it just not there? No, it wasn't. Uh, and uh, our, our report actually identifies that at every step from the alert to the declaration of a public health emergency of international concern to then response at country level and global level, at every step there were delays, failures um, and unpreparedness. But, you know, the, there were reports that countries like the UK, where I live, the USA, parts of Europe, were re had uh, preparedness. I mean, these co were countries with large resources. Were there some things that they did particularly badly that led us to this situation? Well, first, what you're saying is, is that the criteria that we have been using to assess preparedness were not fit for purpose. And we have to review those criteria when uh, learning the lessons from COVID-19. Uh, I do not know about the UK. I can tell you about France or Switzerland, where I am today. Um, there were no simulation exercises for several years around a pandemic. There were no masks, if you remember, last March uh, 2020. Um, there were considerable delays in actually uh, manufacturing uh, diagnostic tests, whereas countries such as Taiwan, South Korea, China had diagnostic tests within two weeks, um, beginning of February 2020. So clearly, uh, preparedness was not there, although checking the, the, the boxes on WHO's, you know, usual files about preparedness, those countries, including the UK, sounded reasonably well prepared. Well, interesting uh, for me is about the global leadership and the coordination between global leaders. I mean, at some stages, it seemed to, to me that it was each country for itself. Um, was global leadership really so discoordinated? Yes, it was. That, that's an important point you're raising, uh, Anton. Um, the international health regulations state that a public health 
a declaration of public health emergency of international concerns is about an extraordinary event that will require a coordinated international response. And um, there was no such coordination. Of course, WHO played its normative role. It actually it, it, uh, provided the world with something like 900 different recommendations on what to do um, in, in response to the pandemic. Some of these recommendations, you know, were not particularly, um, you know, were not those that one would have expected, particularly on masks in the early days, on border closures and so on. But the global leadership, that is the political world coming together and saying, we're facing what we called in the report, a Chernobyl moment. And, and the world should wake up and come together. This is a this is a global pandemic that requires a global response. That doesn't happen, didn't happen. The executive board of the WHO, that is the governing board of WHO, um, that comprises 34 member states, uh, didn't meet before October 2020. Can you imagine any company uh, facing a major, major catastrophe and not calling on its board to convene? So global coordination was very poor. One more example is coordination between uh, WHO and the major health institutions, World Bank, uh, International Monetary Fund. That also took, took months to take place and was not well coordinated. So each, each country went on its own way, even within the European Union, which should be a union, uh, we saw a cacophony, uh, some countries closing borders without, from one day to next, without even uh, warning the neighbors, uh, and, and everyone having a different policy on how to implement lockdowns and, and when and uh, to close them or, or reopen and, and so on. So um, nationalism, inwards looking, uh, lack of multilateral discussions uh, and uh, in in the global panic. But but Michelle, this virus—it's not rocket science to know that if you have a respiratory virus transmitted through the air, that standing further away from somebody wearing a mask might be something that you should you could implement immediately and be ready for. I mean, we have, in a in a very very difficult to transmit bug like a tuberculosis which is spread through the air we've known this for years right so yes we've known this for years but but remember uh anton history it took a long time for who to recognize the aerosolized transmission of tb but the um you know what we have been saying is that um on on the basis that it is a respiratory virus that it is very transmissible that human-human to human transmission was established as soon as January 2020. Uh, the, the WHO should have declared the public health emergency uh, earlier, at least one week earlier, just on the basis of the precautionary principle. Then on masks, as you know, their recommendation uh, in February and March 2020 was that 
people who are infected and diagnosed are, as infected should wear masks to protect the, the others. Um, although we knew already early on that there was asymptomatic transmission of, of the infection as well. So it was, it was really messed up. Yeah, so <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about, about what went wrong. Maybe we can just, before we get to a bit more of that, especially around uh, the investing in preparedness and financing, we could talk about a few things we got right. And I must say, from my point of view, I think our health service did a formidable job from the very beginning. And I saw that in a lot of health services around the world. So health workers' efforts um, were there other, were, what do you think about what I've said and, and, and other things that we might have got right? I, I do agree. Um, and, and what you're saying about the UK, I think, has been true all over the world and is still true in the difficult times that most parts of the world are, are currently uh, facing. But I think another really uh, great and, uh, news uh, uh, here was the open science Remember, uh, China published the sequence of the virus on, on January 12, 2020, and that allowed immediately countries such as their neighbors, who started so early, to manufacture diagnostic tests. WHO communicated uh, PCR uh, kits for, for PCR tests in the third week of January. So open and, and, and of course, publication of the of viral sequence allowed people who worked on vaccine to start, you know, working from, from the first quarter of, of 2020. Um, and I, I don't remember any epidemic where uh, of, of those that we've gone through, um, where, where science has been so much, um, you know, shared and, and, and communicated. Remember, uh, for um, the, the, the influenza, uh, some countries, let's name Indonesia, was very reluctant to share viral sequences, saying that if these go to then rich countries that will produce vaccines that will then go back to the, 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 the countries at unaffordable prices, that would not be helpful. And this is actually, unfortunately, what has happened. But on the science side, I think uh, communications was was quite extraordinary and, and fast. Yeah, and, and although, yeah, we've had a lot of misinformation, I must say, being able to publish all sorts of uh, data from epidemiology, as you say, to basic science very rapidly on the web and live so that people could access to it without um, having to wait for three or four months peer review and four more months to get it published has been incredible. Um, yeah, we've shared a lot of data this way uh, and, and people have even reviewed online almost live. So it's, it's been, as you say, quite amazing. But what about the, the vaccinations. Uh, the, I mean, this is just unprecedented, the way that we have uh, had these vaccines developed so quickly. It is and it is not. Uh, so we had within a year, you know, two very innovative vaccines based on mRNA. Uh, and um, that was, of course, you know, a, a trim, fantastic innovation. Although, of course, the platform for it uh, was pre-existing somehow. That is, it's, it's, it's not just one year of work. It's just, it's adapting to a platform on which 
companies and scientists have been working for more than 10 years adapting the, 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 the sequence uh, that you want to have in your synthetic uh, RNA. Um, for the other vaccines, uh, let's say the adenovaccines, uh, be it the AstraZeneca Oxford, be it uh, the Russian uh, Sputnik, or for the inactivated vaccine from, from China, and now there's also one from India, basically it's using an existing platform and, and inserting the right uh, antigen. We're, we're now waiting for some of protein antigen vaccines that will soon be out. Again, it's established platforms and, and bringing in the right sequence or the right antigen that you, you want to have. So it's what impresses me most is the, the speed at which um, you know, trials were conducted, uh, manufacturing was put in place at risk, even before you would know uh, whether the vaccine is effective. Um, so it was a fantastic dynamic from a scientific perspective, except maybe for the mRNA and possibly the adenovirus, because there's no licensed adenovirus vaccine at this time. You know, we're dealing with, with existing platforms and existing technologies. So to, 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 to me, the fast track was really moving to it and, and serve a global purpose um, for, for a global pandemic. Unfortunately, uh, the end result is a vaccine that now uh, helps out um, many, most of the rich countries of the world. Whereas in Africa, healthcare workers are not vaccinated yet and all over the world, except for high income countries, less than 2% of the population has access to vaccines. So from your report, uh, you call for several actions and, uh, and obviously one of them is about vaccine access. Vaccine access is, uh, is absolutely crucial, and as you say, uh, it's very skewed at the moment. Uh, what, what other actions, uh, and you may elaborate a little bit on that, but what other actions have you called for uh, from this report? Well, we, we have a number of, uh, we, we call for a number of immediate actions, and that is dose sharing of surplus vaccines. High income countries have secured 4.3 billion doses of vaccine for a population of 1.16 billion people. So even if it is two doses of vaccines, there is an, a surplus uh, of at least 2 billion doses at this time. Uh, then we call for immediate um, um, funding. Uh, so to, to allow for a rapid uh, increase in manufacturing capacity for vaccines we call for technology transfer and, um, if needed, a waiver on intellectual property so that the vaccines can be manufactured in several hubs across the world. And we call also on WHO to give us a strategy to get out of this pandemic. The current strategy is uh, to every country, please use the current tools as much as you can, but where are we going? That is, if, if, if only part of the world is vaccinated, if variants will emerge, um, 
what it is that we want to do. Do we want to, con to keep continuously sort of mitigating the consequences uh, of the infection, or do we want to go for elimination? And if we want to go to elimination, what are the steps, the milestones that we want to reach? Just as we have a strategy for TB or for HIV elimination, we need one for COVID-19, and we lack that uh, direction. Uh, again, at this time, every country focuses on itself, and uh, if it has access to vaccines, the only strategy is to get as many people vaccinated as possible, which, of course, is perfectly reasonable. It isn't the, 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 the long-term solution, though, unless it is thought in a global context. Yeah, I mean, what, what concerns me is uh, what you've just hinted at or actually commented on is that it's basically uh, every man for himself, every woman for himself, every person for themselves until uh, we're out of this. And then we might think about something to do in the future. But then if something happens again, we'll end up back where we were. So that's why I really like this report, because... Uh, some of the recommendations about strengthening healthcare systems, public health measures, and this, what you were just saying, coordinating a roadmap has to be brought in uh, uh, by political leadership. And I suppose the governance of it all will be given to WHO. But uh, where do you well, see that? No, where should this sit? Where should it sit no, to make it work? Actually, we, we think the <clears throat> governance of it, all, of it all should be outside WHO. Because the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 has shown that the pandemic is just is not just a sanitary event. It is also, it has been, and it remains uh, a socioeconomic catastrophe. So uh, because of the lack of political leadership, because of the lack of proper coordination between the health governance and the uh, international financing instruments, we believe that uh, the coordination should be and the political leadership should be with what we call a global health threats council, which, uh, you know, I think we can look at as a sort of security council on global health threats. By the way, we hesitated to have it in the Security Council of the UN. However, as you know, the Security Council of the UN has its own issues on how it functions. And then we thought that council, although we want it to be at the level of heads of state, should also include some representative from civil society and from the private sector, so as to hold to the principle of multi-stakeholder uh, governance as, or multilateralism. Uh, as, as um, you know, which is the, the, the current way we, most of us uh, think of multilateralism these days. So uh, a governance outside WHO, but WHO really ruling the normative side of things, that is focusing on the science and focusing on providing the world with the best uh, evidence-based recommendations in a timely fashion. Yeah, and so uh, this uh, new Health Security Council, uh, it's going to be under which umbrella? That's what I'm trying to get at. The UN will have to, will yes, have to take it Yes, it will be umbrella. endorsed. Uh, yes, uh, Anton, it, it will not be a UN institution. It will be 
a, a, a global health threats council on, on, on its own, but it will be endorsed by the UN General Assembly. So that is uh, what will give it give to it the, the political legitimacy. Uh, there are other uh, proposals on the table, other suggestions. The G20 is considering, um, rather than you know, a UN-linked uh, somehow or UN-legitimated council as the one we suggest, the G20 suggests its own platform similar to what it had done during the 2008-2011 finance crisis. Um, but we thought that although the G20 is, uh, of course, remarkably capable of, of, of financing and providing a good umbrella through the finance it may provide, it, it doesn't have the, the political legitimacy of including uh, all of member states uh, as, as the UN General Assembly would have. So that's why we want it to be, we want we suggest three co-chairs to this council, a council of 21 people, but that, of course, is, can be negotiated and discussed. Three co-chairs, two of, of whom would be uh, nominated by the General Assembly of the UN and one nominated by the G20. So to link the political leadership to the financing bit. Well, uh, uh, Michelle, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you, and we could go on for a lot longer. I do hope that we're, we're moving into an era of sound and wise global leadership. And as we're coming out of uh, one which I think has been very much uh, not that at all in the last five or six years, and that we can have a fantastic preparedness plan in case we get another pandemic. And I don't think it's in case. I think it's when we get another pandemic arising. Uh, any final thought from you before we, we leave? The final thought is that, you know, if, if we do not start that reform process now, then, as, as you just said, when? Uh, and we can't wait and we can't afford to wait for another pandemic. People currently are tired of the pandemic. The attention is on trying to have better access to vaccines. But I think we shouldn't delay political action and, and lose the momentum. A time to act is now for reforms. Thank you very much. And so this has been Anton Pozniak with Science and Society talking about all things COVID. And today's topic was preparedness. We're looking forward to uh, uh, you joining us again on a further podcast. And with that, and from Professor uh, Michelle Kazachkin, I'd like to say thank you and goodbye. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcasts. You can learn more about virology education and our other programs at www.academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.